You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. So I'm joined by three individuals who have all attended Names Not Numbers and who are therefore well-versed in the subject of individuality in a mass age. Um, in the studio with me is uh, Robert Phillips, the writer and thinker on citizenship and leadership and business, who's now visiting professor at Cass Business School. Also joining me is Viv Groscott. By day, she's an acclaimed and rather prolific journalist in print and on the radio. And by night, she, is, she, she nails it as a stand-up comedian. Um, and I'm also joined by the freelance journalist who has won so many awards I can't count them all, Ed Caesar. He's actually writing about uh, marathons and the quest to run a marathon in under two hours. And as if to prove that point, he ran here to the studio. So hello, everybody. Morning. Um, hello. Good morning. I want to talk about this individuality thing and I want to ask Viv primarily why do we want to stand out or in your case stand up and is this a thoroughly good thing <laughs> in my case stand up uh, well I don't necessarily think that we all need to become stand up comedians um, I think that's quite important that not everyone should try to do that but I do think that when the modern age is so dominated by digital technology and the idea that we all live in this global village now, it does become increasingly important for us all to mark ourselves out as individuals and feel that our own individual voice is being heard and not just being drowned out in this huge community. Because, you know, years ago, we would all have our role in our small communities, whether that's where you live or what you do for your profession. And now I think the world that we live in it doesn't really matter where you are. You can speak to someone on the other side of the world via Twitter or Facebook or your blog or whatever. So to really mark yourself out and be seen to be the person that you are and to show who you are as an individual and what makes you unique becomes uh, something really important. And I think that... That can be a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's what, what being a human is about, basically, is, you know, we're all the same and yet we're all different. Um, on the other hand, though, it does play to one of the great weaknesses of human nature, which is, um, you know, narcissism and self-obsession. So I think one of the great, you know, tasks and... and um, demands of the modern age is is for us all as individuals to work out how we indulge that side of ourselves without overindulging it and robert that is a real risk isn't it in corporate culture and in business is it seems to me we've enjoyed if that's the right word more than a decade in which brand has reigned supreme do you think we're entering into a slightly different phase of corporate individuality well i was just listening to viv and um uh with no disrespect maybe the wrong people are doing the stand-up comedy um, you think about the politicians. Present company accepted. Present company accepted. You think about the politicians who are accidentally comedic or the business leaders who are accidentally comedic. And I think one of the things about individualism now is giving a real expression to those who were unseen or unheard previously. And that can help us rehumanize the conversation and rehumanize society and to your question about corporate life, rehumanize business. You see that now with the reforms that hopefully are going on within the banking sector. 
But is it not the case that brands and companies and politicians have masked their individuality because they've all been on message the whole time? And so how do you actually have a, a, a connection between an individual political party or an individual company and the people they're serving. We're right in the middle of a of, of a food labelling scandal in uh, in the UK and across Europe at the moment, where somehow uh, trust has 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 broken down between the consumer and the producer. What what's your view on that, Robert? Well, I tweeted over the weekend that the the horse meat scandal is a very powerful metaphor for the failure of ethics in business and responsibility in business and and the whole supply chain. Uh, but to answer your question, I think that. Uh, business has become anonymized uh, because of corporate messaging. But at the same time, you do see or have seen the emergence of celebrity leadership, but it's the wrong form of celebrity. And I think the biggest challenge for any organization now is to design its existence around its people, not in a cliched way, but human design, letting the voices of the organization speak for the organization and reassess, reappraise and re-deliver its values is very, very important. Ed, just to um, continue the animal analogy, you know, is is two legs good and four legs bad? Are humans still very superior at uh, asserting their individuality? Or is there, are you sensing as you travel around the world some kind of shift going on? I'd say that more people have discovered the means with which to express themselves in terms of, you know, we talk about social media, but also... Um, there's just more things available but, uh, to uh, to change people's minds, um, books, newspapers, whatever it is. Old world technology has actually become much more uh, prevalent in places we used to thought of as kind of beyond the reach of big ideas and what have you. So, you know, you can have a discussion with a Nairobi taxi driver about a book about globalization. That's happened. You know, you have... Um, you know, I had a meeting with someone in um, in Ethiopia and they said, oh, I saw what you tweeted the other day. And I was like, wow, you know, we're in Addis Ababa and we're, uh, we're all talking about the same thing, effectively. Mm-hmm. There is a kind of worldwide discussion going on. So that, that's one aspect of it. The other thing is, I think, that in our interactions with each other, there is a danger because we use the same methods of groupthink the whole time. And perhaps our indiv- individuality is more about what is the unexpressed self. So it's not always about what we say, which is always in some way palatable. (laughs) It may be what we say to each other on the sofa at home, which is actually our best expression of our individuality. Um, Not everything is out there, and we realise that we have a performing self and a kind of Mm, inner self. I think that's so interesting. Uh, That... I find a real um, there's a real tension there for people and people don't quite know how to deal with that I think because I think for people who work in the media or if you publish your work um, or broadcasters etc they're they're more used to presenting every aspect of themselves and being quite easy and open about that but now that anyone can go on Twitter and anyone can have a blog and we all have to have this kind of virtual presence where anybody can Google you at any time I'm not just talking about being paranoid about social media here I mean we're all having to get to a stage where we have to be who we are all of the time and it's what Robert was just saying about trust and ethics 
that people need to be able to trust who you are and know who you are. But isn't it and that's very challenging and difficult for people, I think, uh, to k- maintain a sense of being private as well. But as it's an individual. also that we are now in an entirely blended world, you know, the culture of going to work, if you like, in a bowler hat or even in a uniform is now uh, associated with jobs that have less powerful you know you wear a uniform in say a supermarket or a factory floor but you can pretty much wear what you like in 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 a in a different kind of day job and so i i have two questions really one is what is the downside of that this oversharing culture in which our personalities and our personal views uh become uh brought into a professional world but also before we talk about that, Ed, I want to come back to you about this question of scale and the mass, because you still have in emerging economies vast, unquantifiable numbers of people who are trying to uh, engage at the same time as everybody else. And how do, how are we... Is it not the case that our obsession with individuality and personalisation is slightly trying to sort of keep at bay the fact that we cannot all fit uh, into into a system at the same time? Well, I would say that the West, Britain in particular, America, says we've all got to be individuals. You're all individuals. Uh, but that's not the case everywhere. And in fact, you know, in large parts of Africa, the, you know, things don't mean anything until you do them together. You don't sing as a soloist. You don't run alone. These are things you do in groups, and they start to have value when you do them as groups, as part of communities. Whereas we're always told, it's very important here, that you develop your own individual identity. But if you asked someone, you know, in India perhaps, or in Africa, or wherever you're um, travelling, you know, their identity is partly what we would consider our kind of, you know, soloist identity, but it's also the choir identity as well. Um, whereas we would all struggle to get away from that choir identity. I don't want to be talked of as, you know, as an Islingtonite. I don't want to be talked of as a, you know, you're always trying to say, well, yes, I am that, but I'm also all these other things. So, Robert, how do you, uh, do you agree with that? And is is there a defensiveness in, if you like, the West? where individuality is used as a sort of barrier? Well, I think individuality can be misinterpreted as selfishness. Yeah. So, so I think that the, the, the key issue for me here is that individuals are actually now able, partly through social media and social business, to find their voice as citizens. But that's not to say that they're selfish or they don't have values. You can be a great soloist but still sing within a choir, to, to, to Ed's point. I think that's right. But to go back to what, what Viv was saying, um, I think there is this tension between um, implicit and explicit acceptance of groupthink. And I think historically, um, and certainly for the past 20 years in the age of mass consumerism, groupthink has forced this sort of implicit acceptance of authority. And I think that individuals now are demanding a much more explicit relationship, either with the organisations for whom they work, for whom they vote, uh, or for what products they buy. Viv? Mm, well, I, just, I was just immediately thinking of the problems for the coalition in particular with that because I think that we're really seeing in politics now this 
complete inability to be able to speak as an individual and anyone who can um, I'm, I'm thinking of Boris Johnson here actually immediately um, anyone who can mark themselves out as an individual and be able to speak with their own voice uh, seemingly uncensored dangerously uncensored in his case I would argue um, they are immediately capture people's attention because people they feel that they can trust that it's regardless um, of what they say exactly they say, it's just it's the mode in which they yeah, say it's, it's appealing it's a, almost um a, a, a sort of primeval sense that we all have when somebody's speaking the truth we want to listen to them and we we kind of like them even despite ourselves even if we don't like what they're saying um this is how dictatorships is, have occurred that, i would <laughs> argue um, and uh, yeah i think what's that's a real really big challenge for politics now is how they are going to be heard and listened to and trusted when they don't seem to be able to speak with their own individual voices why is that system so stuck? I mean, when you uh, when you look at how innovative the forms of of, of connection are in other spheres, uh, and this really comes on to the second theme uh, that names not numbers addresses in twenty thirteen of connection and disconnection. Why do why do you think uh, that politics? doesn't seem to be able to make the connection with people anymore. Ed? I would say ties have a lot to do with it. All the leaders of the political parties wear these horrific (laughs) colour-blocked ties. You really do mean ties. There's no metaphor going on There's no metaphor. No, but it says something about you, I think. If if, if all you can do is wear these sort of primary colours, you know, it's like we're in a crash... There is just nothing offensive. Mm. And I feel like ties should not be a total expression of your individuality. And I don't think wacky ties should come back in. I don't think musical ties should come back in. But it would be nice to think that we could accept someone who didn't just look good on television. Uh, Though Cameron went out of his way in the early (laughs) days to do the sort of tieless look. The sort of Steve Hills yeah, yeah. David Cameron Tyler it, but but I think ties are a powerful metaphor as well as being a, a an actuality as well. Um, I You're think wearing a very expressive I, tie I mean, today, I, pink with multicoloured dots. Yeah, it, it, it's I my think political for the purposes confusion. of audio, we need to restrict the descriptions <laughs> of the ties. But but, but I so. think that the ties are a powerful metaphor because I think there is a um, a, 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 a a root in the past. They're tied to the past. They're tied to an anachronistic power structure. And I think that real people, whether they are employees, whether they're purchasers in the supermarket, whether they're voters in the polling booth, really detect a sense of shift in society. But those that are tied to old power structures, political leaders, are just swaying with the movements that they think are popular enough to get them re-elected. And I think this is the tension between implicit and explicit, the tension between swaying and shifting. The politicians' ties, therefore, are just too heavy uh, to carry. Is it also that politicians are, are restricted by the baggage that they, in fact are individuals weighed down by a system and a structure and a bureaucracy, really, that means they can't say what they really think at any given time because it's against the party line. Their ties, to come back to your analogy, are are too strong uh, and they feel they're going to betray somebody, whereas what society is craving is intimacy and belonging and meaning. Because that comes back, I think, to your point earlier, Viv, about um, really the the emotional self that is coming into 
into everything and can politicians be genuinely emotional beings I, I think if they don't find a way in which to do this um, I do think the structure of politics is going to collapse in some way or vote, I mean, voters are already hugely disengaged you know our voting numbers in the UK are, are appalling you know that I mean it's getting so that more people don't vote than than do so I think if they don't find a way to do that then more people will become completely disengaged from politics and find their own ways to create political structures but it was making me think of what you mentioned earlier about uniform and how now if you're the sort of person who would wear a bowler hat to work then that's being seen as somehow being lower status because you can't express yourself in the way that you want. And I think it's the same with politics, both metaphorically and literally with the the, the coloured ties, that we don't respect them so much because we know that they're not allowed to be themselves. Do you think the, 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 the um, Home Secretary, Theresa May's rather fabulous dress sense is accounting for the fact that people are saying she's going to be a new Conservative leader, given that women on the whole do not wear ties. Can we just can we just have a moment of gender equality when talking about fashion, Ed? I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> I'm not a you know, huge Theresa May fan, um, neither am I hugely against her, but um, I don't think that wearing some jazzy shoes or some killer heels now and again should endure you or otherwise to the electorate. I think we need a whole other conversation on this uh, <laughs> and we're very happy to have it. I want to ask you, Ed, your particular subject that you're going to be addressing at Names Not Numbers, which will be available in a separate podcast, is the uh, connection you make in reading long-form uh, literature and writing versus the tweet culture, the instant culture what what are you thinking and feeling about that my feeling is that we are connected say via twitter to more people more ideas more text than at any point perhaps in our history and that when we feel at our most connected that may be when we are least connected because uh the experience is evanescent and doesn't um, address complicated stories. Now, it may be a means to getting to complicated stories, which tell us interesting things about what we're doing on the planet, but it's not the story itself. And I would say that when you read a fantastically composed, structured, um, beautifully reported, fact-checked, 10,000-word piece, um, what you're doing is making one deep connection rather than a thousand small ones. You're making one deep connection to someone else's imagination, work, reporting. Uh, someone else is telling you a partial narrative, but a more complete narrative than the one that you are being given on a daily basis. And I would say that at the times when the smartphone gets left at home, which is quite often when I'm away reporting for a couple of weeks somewhere where I'm not going to have reception, I use a little Nokia phone for texting and phoning and have no connection to social media of any kind. Uh, I spend two or three days like a junkie scratching at my pocket thinking, um, you know, where's my next tweet coming from and, you know, who's been in touch? And there is that kind of need to feel connected. And then eventually that passes and suddenly you start looking <laughs> again. Yes. I mean, I do something called Techno Shabbat every week for 24 <laughs> hours. I literally turn off um, access to the internet and emails and I do find my thought processes change and I read more and I, and, and I connect 
differently. But Robert, is it also the case that our capacity to have complicated ideas, essentially, is becoming disconnected? That the problem with instantaneous, whether it's telephone voting or whether it's texting or whatever it is, is that something is happening to our synapses and the way that we're actually thinking I think so. I mean, Lionel Barber uh, was interviewed uh, by Roy Greenslade in The Guardian this morning and said something like the first chapter of history is now digital. And I think that's a very powerful um, symbolism. But I was struck by something that, that Ed said, because I think it ties back to the questions you were asking previously about politicians. Um, we've almost become fearful of long-form literature. We've become fearful of locking ourselves away with a book, of spending time. And that's because we've become more fearful of the intimacy, of complexity and of possibilities. And it's exactly the same reason that we become detached from our from our politicians as well, because they too are fearful of intimacy, complexity and possibilities. And ultimately, with the world in the mess that it's in on so many fronts, what we need is imagination. And what, of course, long-form literature gives you is there's a sense of the possible, the sense of imagination. And that's where we seem to have retreated from in this sort of mass age. Well, at this point, I'd like to read you a tiny extract from a novel I've just finished, which is Philip Roth's Exit Ghost. And I quote, I imagine from what I've read of your work that you're a curious person rather than one who makes superficial judgments. I guess there's a pleasure in having a curious person's curiosity fixed on you, unquote. Now, I love the word curiosity and I use it a lot it seems to me do you agree something of a gateway to liberation and freedom Viv yeah absolutely and I was just thinking of that whilst Robert were talking you're so good at drawing together lots of different strands and I was very uh, (coughs) radio loving happening yes loving loving Um, but yes I think that this tension between complexity and brevity and self-expression and being part of the mass curiosity is something that can draw those things together because I think curiosity is one of the fundamental parts of being human it's perhaps one of the most uh, important parts of us and I think that it is curiosity that drives people to go off in a certain direction and become completely obsessed with Twitter but then they'll experience a huge backlash and I don't think they necessarily will be fearful of say long form literature or complex ideas because I think we're all so curious about so many different things and we don't like to be defined in one particular direction that we'll often become obsessed with one certain kind of way of thinking or way of being and then we'll suddenly regret that and think oh no but I must now do my techno Shabbat and I must read the long form literature. I think the curiosity is what, what stops us from becoming too narrow ed i would say that we are in a golden age for long form because partially uh twitter has allowed us to see so many more writers and so many more ideas than we used to yeah see so as a gateway it's beautiful i think there is a danger when you are connected to so many people and so many bits of information that you believe yourself to be an expert uh cf philip schofield so, yeah, um, you know, various other people who have made huge, you know, Sally Berker, whatever. The, these, these are people who believe themselves to be an expert in, uh, in a story in which they were not. And facts are not one as easily as sitting on your smartphone but, and looking at someone else's opinion. But do you not think that the reputation of journalism, which has come in for a considerable battering, nevertheless remains... Uh, resting on the fact that journalism 
is defined by its curiosity. When you go off to Ethiopia and you go to India to report, you actually want to know something and you want to bring those answers out. Is that yeah, I d- that I mean, is alive and well, isn't it? I hope so. It's it's to do with restlessness and curiosity and to do with the idea that you don't know what a story is when you first start reporting. There is a big danger and I, I you know because I've worked in British newspapers and I'm starting to work for American publications. Uh, I used to see a lot and and editors who knew what the story was when they commissioned it. I said, well, you know, why do you want me to write it then? Because the idea is you knock on a few doors and you start talking to people and maybe a slightly more nuanced story emerges or there is a more complicated story. And that only happens when you go out and knock on someone's door. So it's curiosity, yes. So, Robert, is certainty a problem for society at large. Are we incurious? In fact, that was a charge laid at the ex-director general of the BBC who arguably did not ask questions of his own organisation. Is an incuriosity uh, a, a failure to connect to wider issues? Well, I think it's, it's a bit like Ed scratching his pocket whilst en route to Addis Ababa. Um, I, I think Which that, is a nice image, by the way. Um, um, I think that um, this need for instant gratification actually despoils journalism and despoils a lot of society and takes away our, our curiosity. Because a lot of journalism now is increasingly defined by this need to instantly reply and instantly opinionate. I think it's suffered the same malaise that you described Schofield or Burko as having. Um, to answer your question, Julia, um, I, I think we do need to rediscover our, our curiosity because we, we need to rediscover our imagination and, and curiosity and imagination are, are absolutely linked. And part of the problem is, is that politicians lack imagination business leaders lack imagination um, and until we reimagine society we're not going to get out of the mess in which we find ourselves last word to viv viv when you stand up in your comedy and therefore when you stand out what is it do you think that connects you to an audience in a couple of words it's emotion and the the tr- the trust and the truth behind that emotion because if an audience believes that you're telling them the truth and that you're connecting with them on a genuine emotional level about something that you actually care about whether you're being funny about it or not then they listen to you and that creates an instant connection with anyone it doesn't even matter if they hate you on which note thank you individuality in a mass age connection and disconnection i'd like to thank viv groscott robert phillips and ed caesar thank you that was the names not numbers podcast There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.